Lou just couldn't get it, could he? Two guys that were talking to each other, but were just talking right on past one another, totally misunderstanding each other in the funniest way possible. You ever have a conversation like that? I work in tech support, so that's a weekly occurrence for me. Um, if you don't know me, my name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here at Gateway, and I have the privilege of being the communicator for you today. And I got to be honest, this is different. I'm in an empty room looking at a bunch of empty chairs, and I miss seeing all of you. It's, it's different for sure, but, but different doesn't necessarily mean bad. And, and I'm really excited that we are a part of a church that has the technology and has the infrastructure in place to be able to, to live stream this right to you in your home. And um, a few weeks ago, Tony unveiled the questions that we at Gateway believe should be the questions that disciples are asking of themselves uh, in terms of deciding whether or not we are growing as a disciple of Jesus. And the very first question was about this idea of our habits, of cultivating habits, right? The question was, where are my habits leading me? In this gathering, this time that we set aside each week to be able to be together, to pray, to praise, to be challenged, to be encouraged, this is one of those habits that we practice because it leads us toward Jesus. Each Sunday, we are reminded that we, we serve a risen Savior, a Savior, a Lord who was, died and, who was dead and entombed on a Friday, but on Sunday was found to be alive. And this rhythm of gathering on Sundays, it brings us back to that. It points us back to that, and it centers us in the idea that we are commissioned to live our lives every day, not just Sundays, but every day, governed by love and on a mission to spread the hope of that resurrection all around us. And so even though our gathering looks different today, and it feels a little upside down, the Jesus that we serve, like Tony said, is the same yesterday and today and forever, and we can trust him with everything in our lives, and that is good news. Well, last week, Tony got us uh, started on our current series, which is called The Bad Boys of Easter, and we're taking the weeks that are leading up to Easter to kind of talk a little bit about some of the peripheral characters in the story, some of the characters that maybe fit the villain mold, because we think that we can learn a lot about ourselves through those characters. And last week, Tony shared with us about Caiaphas, uh, who was the high priest during the time of Jesus. Uh, This week, we're going to be talking about Judas. Now, everybody's heard of Judas, right? Maybe Caiaphas was a new character to you last week, but, but everybody knows who Judas is because Judas is notorious, right? We use his name along the, along the well-known traitors like Benedict Arnold, right? Just, just saying the word, the name Judas in conversation invokes these ideas and these images of betrayal. Everyone knows Judas. And I gotta be honest, preparing for this message this week got a little awkward at times, right? Because, you know, one of the things you do as you're preparing, as you're praying, you're saying, Jesus, help, help me to, to, to give something that is practical, that is helpful to people, right? And so I'm praying to Jesus, and I'm like, hey, hey Jesus, um, remember the guy that got you killed? I'm talking about him this week. Do you have any pointers for me? And that was, that was kind of awkward, right, if I'm being honest. But, but then as weird as that felt, I definitely felt the Spirit of Jesus respond to me in that moment and say, yeah, I've got a pointer for you. Um, remember that I washed his feet. And I mean, truthfully, I feel like that right there could have been it for us today. We probably could have sat in that for the entire week and for years to come and process through what that means, right? Because there's something powerful about that. But I think there's more that we can learn from the story of Judas. And so we're, we're going to do this thing today. And I'm going to try and keep it concise for sure, because I know that you're sitting on your couches at home right now. And if I go too long, you're just going to fall asleep on me. So I'm going to keep it short for you, all right? So here we go. Um, and preparing for this week, I realized that we don't really know that much about Judas, which is interesting, right? Because everybody knows who he is, but we don't know that much about him. 
And so I started by finding every passage in the New Testament that mentions Judas, and, uh, and I'll be honest, there isn't much to go on. What do we really know about Judas? We know that he was called Judas Iscariot, although we don't really know what Iscariot means. There's a thought process that it means that he was from the town of Kiriath, which was south of Jerusalem, but we don't even necessarily know that for sure. We, know, we, you know, we don't know his occupation. We don't know when he began to follow Jesus. All we have is his name and a few stories in Scripture that tell us about him. And truthfully, we don't even have very many of those before the night that he betrayed Jesus, right? Only John tells us one little thing about Judas before the night that he betrayed Jesus. We know very little about him. And yet, despite our lack of knowledge, our lack of understanding about Judas, I think that you and I aren't that different from Judas. What if I told you that that we all have a little bit of Judas in us? What if I told you that everyone listening to this today, right now, has the potential to be just like Judas? And in fact, I'm going to go so far as to say that it is our natural inclination to be just like Judas was. And maybe you don't believe me, and that's okay. I've got 20 minutes to convince you otherwise. We're going to spend our time primarily today in the books of Matthew and a little bit of John. And I just want to say that there are four gospel accounts, and all four of them record these events just a little bit differently. There are some variances, and we don't have time or space today to kind of cover all of that. Uh, But Matthew and John tell us the most about Judas, so that's where we're going to be hanging out today. And uh, our story begins just shortly before the third Passover that Jesus shared with his disciples. He's on his way to Jerusalem, and um, we're right about a week before Jesus' death at this point. And Jesus and his friends, they stop in this town called Bethany because they want to pay a visit to a man named Simon. And we're going to pick up our story in Matthew 26, and the scripture should be on your screen for you. It says, while Jesus was in Bethany, in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar, a very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. And when the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste? This perfume could have been sold at a high price and, given, and the money given to the poor. Now that was Matthew's version, but, but if you hop over to, to John's version, he records just a little bit of extra detail for you. Here's what John has to say about that same event. He says, but one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was in it. So John specifically mentions Judas as the antagonist in this story that gets all the rest of the disciples riled up about what he sees as money that could have been donated and given to the poor instead. And John just calls Judas out, right? John calls him right out, says, you are the one that got this started and you are a thief, right? That little commentary is the only thing we know about Judas at all before the night that Jesus is betrayed. And so, so Jesus and his followers, they move on from Bethany. They continue to move uh, toward Jerusalem, where the events leading to Jesus' crucifixion just start to unfold very quickly. And the gospel authors make it clear that when Jesus turned ahead to Jerusalem this time, that there was a distinct purpose in mind. The excitement that was surrounding him had kind of had built to a fever pitch, right? He had amassed this following, and, and John shares that as Jesus approaches the holy city, that people start to wave palm branches, and they start to lay down their coats, and they start to shout things like, Hosanna, and blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and blessed is the king of Israel. And look, that was no small thing to be shouting, and, and this is why. Israel already had kings, 
Herod Antipas, and they were all Roman puppets, right? Herod Antipas uh, governed the area. He was a king over the area that Jesus was from, Galilee. And um, Pontius Pilate governed the whole area of Judea, right? And both of those people were ultimately subservient to Caesar Tiberius, who was the emperor. And so when people start shouting that Jesus is a coming king, it's a big deal because it's treacherous, it's traitorous, it's mutiny. It's mutiny. In fact, it's what got Jesus killed in the end. And to be fair, they had good reason for shouting the things that they were shouting because the scriptures were clear about two things, right? The scriptures that they read told them two things. One, God was going to send Israel a king from David's direct ancestry, from David's line. And then second of all, that king would reestablish the kingdom of Israel as it was in the days of David and Solomon. And in many ways, Jesus fit the mold of that Messiah that they knew was coming, right? The, The Messiah from their Hebrew scriptures. The Jews had been waiting so long for this anointed one. And there were a lot of expectations about what he would look like. And Jesus checked off a lot of those boxes. In fact, Jesus didn't even deny that he was a king. But there were some peculiarities about about Jesus that just didn't seem to jive with everybody's expectations. For example, he was pretty passive with the Romans. The Romans were the occupying force, the oppressors, the enemy. He didn't seem to hate them. In fact, he seemed pretty indifferent toward them. He even paid his taxes. On the other hand, he openly antagonized the Jewish leaders, and he upset the temple system that was so important to them. He didn't didn't have like a militia. He didn't have a war chest. He didn't have a group of guys, soldiers surrounding him. He didn't seem to be organizing any sort of uprising or getting ready to overthrow somebody. He didn't have any of that. Still, People were pretty sure that this guy was the king who had been promised centuries ago. And, and, and they were pretty sure they knew how this was going to play out, right? They knew that this Messiah would start an uprising, and he would drive the Romans out of the land in order to set up the kingdom of Israel once more. And the promise was that that kingdom would never end. And look, several people in the preceding centuries, they had tried to be just this, right? There were several people who had tried to stage an uprising and kick Rome out of, out of Israel, and each of them had ultimately failed. Each of them had ultimately died. But none of those people had ever healed somebody who was sick. None of those people had ever helped somebody who was blind see again. None of those people had ever raised someone back to life from the dead. And so while Jesus maybe he was kind of bucking some of the expectations that they had about this Messiah. He was doing things that no one had ever seen before, and they were ready to crown him king right now. So this trip to Jerusalem, it felt different. It felt like Jesus of Nazareth was ready to finally just throw off the cloak of the rabbi and claim his rightful throne. And the disciples, well, they had the inside track to prestige and power in that kingdom, right? They had been there from the beginning, they, they were already picking out cabinet positions and vying for that VP slot because, because they, were, they wanted position. They were jockeying for position, trying to secure their place close to the seat of power in the inner circle, all of them, including Judas. Judas wanted what everybody wanted. He wanted standing. He wanted wealth. He wanted security. He wanted power. And he figured that being close to Jesus was the way to get to all of those things. And in retrospect, he clearly wasn't paying attention, right? Uh, But to be fair, neither were any of the other disciples, and we're going to come back to that in just a bit. For now, let's pick up our story where we left off in um, in Matthew chapter 26 at verse 14. And again, it'll be on your screen. It says, Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests, and he said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? 
And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, they saw, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Judas, unprompted, but seeing opportunity in front of him, goes to the chief priests, who have already been plotting against Jesus, right? They already tried to kill him once the first time he went to Bethany, and they were unsuccessful, right? And so, so Judas simply offers, hey, I will deliver Jesus to you for whatever you want to give me. Which makes you think there has to be more to the story than just simple greed, right? I mean, Judas had all the leverage in the situation. The chief priest wanted Jesus. He was coming. He had a way to deliver him. But he just says, eh, just name your price. And what he accepts from the chief priests is just a little over a third of what he complained about just a week before, right? The woman who broke the perfume on Jesus on his head, or his feet, depending on which, which account you read, was worth 300 denarii, right? But, but 30 shekels of silver was worth 120. And so Judas clearly wasn't in, like, in the mood to bargain here, even though he could have, right? And that fact seems to undermine the idea that this was just about money for Judas. Let's keep reading. It says, now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will, you have for us, where will you have us prepare to eat the Passover? He said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the 12. And as they were eating, he said, truly I say to you, one of you, will betray me. And they were very sorrowful, and they began to say to him at one after another, is, is it I, Lord? And he answered, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would be better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, is it I, Rabbi? And he said to him, you have said so. There's a couple interesting things to note in this passage. First of all, clearly Ju- uh, Judas was outside of suspicion, right? You look at the Last Supper painting, you see a Judas that looks nefarious, who looks like he's just you know, looking for trouble, but that seems to go against everything we see in all four of our gospel accounts. No one seems to suspect anything of Judas. Each one of them in turn says, is it me? Am I the one? Right? Nobody's pointing a finger saying, well, clearly, like we know which one of us it's going to be, Right? And if you read John's account, there's, there's a little bit of a different twist. John is sitting next to Jesus, and he kind of leans over to Jesus, and he says, asks him privately, who, who, who's the betrayer going to be? And Jesus says, I'm going I'm to dip this bread, and I'm going to hand it to the betrayer, and that's who it's going to be, right? And so he hands it to Judas, and obviously the rest of the disciples didn't hear that, but John did. And then John says that Jesus says to Judas, go, what you're going to do, do quickly. No one expects anything out of him when that happens, though. John even says they all just thought maybe he was going to go give some money to the poor, or he was going to go get more food for their feast, right? Clearly, Judas was not some sort of a devious figure with a bad reputation. Still, we fast forward just a little bit in the story, and we know that later that night, Judas shows up with a crowd to have Jesus arrested and, uh, you know, singles him out with a kiss of betrayal. And Jesus is let off to be tried, and, and he gets bounced back and forth between these different officials, but eventually Jesus is condemned to die the death of an enemy of the state, which is crucifixion. And at that point in the narrative, Matthew pauses for a second. All of these things are happening to Jesus, just fast and furious, right? But Matthew pauses for a second right there to tell us something about Judas. And, and if you're at home with young kids right now, I would, I would encourage you just to mute this for the next minute or so. Um, this is what Matthew has to say. It says, Then when Judas his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind 
And he brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what's that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and he hanged himself. But the chief priests, taking the pieces of silver, said, it's not lawful for us to put this into the treasury. It's blood money. So they took counsel and they bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. If this was about money, Judas would not have reacted the way that he did. He was clearly shocked by what happened to Jesus. He did not expect what happened. He did not expect Jesus to die. In fact, he probably never expected Jesus to even see the walls of a prison. Because you see, this wasn't about money for Judas. His lack of desire to negotiate with a chief priest kind of bears witness to that for us. Judas wasn't trying to line his pockets. Judas was trying to spark a revolution. Judas was trying to force Jesus' hand. You see, he was tired of waiting for this kingdom that Jesus spent so much time talking about. He wanted to see him take action to do something about it, to finally discard the rabbi cloak and seize power to get the revolution underway, to seize power to throw the Romans out of Palestine and usher in the new kingdom of Israel that Scripture said would never end. And when he did, Judas wanted a seat at the king's table. Judas was simply trying to expedite the process and get things moving. Surely, he thought, when they show up, when this crowd shows up, Jesus is not going to let himself be arrested. Surely, he thought, he's, he's, he's going to fight. He won't have a choice. His hand will be forced. He'll no longer be able to waste any time. He will have to fight. And because he's the Messiah, he will win. And yet, what we see from Jesus is exactly the opposite He says things like, I could bring 12 legions of angels down to fight more for me if I wanted to. He says things like, my kingdom is not of this world. Clearly, Jesus was after something different than Judas was. And therein lies the real tragedy of our character today. The tragedy of Judas is that he refused to accept Jesus as he was, and he tried to make him who he wanted him to be. That's the real story of Judas. He refused to accept Jesus as he was, and he tried to make him who he wanted to be. And look, Judas wasn't alone in that regard. He was the betrayer, but none of the other disciples got it either. At least not until the resurrection. They just totally missed it. Jesus spent all this time talking about the kingdom. He told stories, and he told parables, and he told people about He invited people into the kingdom, but his disciples just didn't get that his kingdom was different than what they were expecting. It wasn't what they were expecting. And I mean, just look at how they acted, right? Sandwiched right between the Passover meal that we just talked about and Judas's betrayal is a story in Luke where the disciples are, are bickering over who's the greatest, who's the best, right? They just want, they want to, they want to settle that once and for all. Jesus has just, and I mean literally just, the verse before this is him telling them that somebody's going to betray him. And what they do is they start arguing amongst themselves about which one of them is the greatest, which one of them is the best, Right? And here's what Jesus says to him. He says, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as the one who serves. For who's greater, the one that reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one reclining at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. 
If you go back just a few more days, right, they're, they're on the way to Jerusalem, and there's this story in Matthew and Mark where two of, the, two of the disciples or their mother, depending on which account you read, kind of sidle up to Jesus along the way. They kind of take him off to the side, and they're like, hey, Jesus, um, what are the chances that when you come to power in your kingdom that me and my brother could sit at your left and your right, right? The rest of the gang hears about this, and they get furious. There's this huge uproar. There's this huge argument that ensues, right? Because again, they all just want, they're all jockeying for position. But here's the deal. They just didn't understand Jesus' kingdom, right? Because do you remember who it was that got to be at Jesus' left and his right when he was enthroned? It was the two criminals who were crucified next to him, right? And I guarantee that's not what James and John had in mind when they came to Jesus and said, hey, can we, can we be at your right and your left? And yet, after traveling with him for three years, and hearing him talk about this kingdom for three years, these are the questions they're asking him because they just didn't get it. No matter how hard Jesus tried to explain this kingdom to them and say that it wasn't going to be anything like what you expected, they just didn't get it. The disciples had their idea of who this king should be and who, what his kingdom should be like, and Jesus had his. And like Abbott and Costello, they are talking to each other, but they are talking right past one another right? They are not understanding each other. They might as well be speaking different languages to one another. And so that's where we begin to bring it back home. Judas's issue is that he refused to accept Jesus as he was and tried to make him who he wanted to be. And and sometimes, if we're being honest, so do we. Every single one of us can be just like Judas. Judas' greatest flaw was his inability to understand Jesus and his kingdom as they were meant to be understood, and every single one of us has the potential to do the same. The temptation of Judas, our temptation, is to bend Jesus to our will, to understand him in our own terms, to fit him to our expectations and our desires and our dispositions. And we do this in a variety of ways, right? We, we try to fit Jesus into being American, right? We try to make him out to be a capitalist or a socialist. We try to make Jesus a Republican or a Democrat. Jesus has been co-opted to support both the right to bear arms and pacifism, war and peace, prosperity and vows of poverty, and the list just goes on, Right? The truth is that every single one of us comes to Jesus with preconceptions of what we think he should be and what we want him to be. We see things, in, and when we see things in him uh, that don't line up with that, we just kind of conveniently ignore them or set those things aside, right? When we come across things we, he said that we don't know how to handle, we just kind of pretend like he never said, thing, right? said, said them, right? Because that's, that's easier, that's neater. Jesus fits into our nicely labeled box that way. But if we want to be a part of the kingdom that Jesus spent so much breath telling everybody about, we need to be able to check our expectations at the door. We need to be willing to come to him empty-handed and humble and open. Open to the idea of a kingdom that doesn't make sense to us. Open to the ideas of having our, the idea of our power dynamics being flipped totally upside down. Humble about the fact that Jesus might just know better than we do. We need to put away the shoehorn that we use to squeeze Jesus into the mold that we have created for him and instead let Jesus be Jesus. 
regardless of how difficult some of the things he teaches are, regardless of how much we feel like he should fit this description or that description. We have to resist the pull that Judas experienced to decline to accept Jesus as he is and instead make him who we want him to be. We need to allow Jesus to change us, not the other way around. And when we do that, we just might come to find that Jesus doesn't quite fit the labels and the expectations that we had of him. Judas is a cautionary tale. He's a cautionary tale to us that we can spend a whole lot of time with Jesus and still completely miss him, right? Our job isn't to try and fit Jesus into a nice, neat label. Our job is to sit at his feet and listen. To do the hard work of hearing what he's saying, even when it doesn't make sense to us, even when it's not what we want to hear. To not ignore the things that seem contradictory, or the things that don't line up or that are too difficult for us to deal with, but to hold them in tension as we seek to follow him and to brace the upside-down nature of our upside-down king. And in the process, we get to see his kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven and in our life as it is in his. And so today as we wrap up, this is, this is my challenge for you. And this is simple. Um, not easy, but it's simple. Th- simply ask yourself these questions. What expectations do I have of Jesus? What do I bring to the table when I spend time with Jesus in prayer, when I spend time with Jesus in scripture? And am I boxing Jesus in? Am I using Jesus to justify a behavior or a belief or a thought that maybe, maybe he isn't really trying to say? And those might be uncomfortable questions. Those might be difficult questions to ask. But if we want to avoid the Judas trap, that's what's required of us. Let Jesus be Jesus. Let him change us, and may his kingdom come, and his will be done. Amen. Pray with me, will you? Jesus, we come to you today, and uh, we do so humbly, knowing that you are God and we are not, knowing that the way this dynamic was supposed to work is that you change us, not the other way around. And that's hard. That's hard, Jesus, because some of the things you said are pretty, pretty tough. Some of the things you said are pretty difficult. And uh, we have our way of wanting to do things, and that just doesn't always line up with the way you wanted to do things. But Jesus, we also trust that when you said that you came that we may have life and have it to the fullest that you meant it, and that you know what that life is. And you are inviting us into your kingdom, here on earth as it is in heaven. And so, as we approach you, may we be not not like Martha, but like Mary. May we choose the greater thing. May we choose to sit at your feet and hear from you and learn from you and be like you. And as we do that, may your kingdom spread just like the leaven, just like the mustard seed, all over our world. May our world be different. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, Jesus. And we pray all these things in your name. Amen.